Good morning, everybody. It's nice to see everyone this morning. I trust uh, everyone else has had, uh, hopefully had a refreshing weekend so far. We actually got together yesterday for a family get-together in Columbia, which is always fun when you have, you know, seven small children, you know, running around the house and lots of playing and joy and laughter and screaming and everything else. Uh, But we got together yesterday because uh, within our extended family, uh, there are several birthdays that take place right in, uh, in the October-November range. And so instead of having everyone having their own particular birthday, we get together for one big celebration and just kind of exchange gifts at one time uh, because it's much easier, again, when there are seven small people that love to run around and terrorize one another. Uh, and and I just, I'd, I'd like to share one of the things that I got for for my birthday as a late birthday present, it's a ceramic bacon mug that you can actually cook your bacon in their microwave. And it's a magical thing. And for those of you that don't know me that well yet, I am passionate about my bacon. I love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, At one time, I actually had a wallet that looked like raw strips of bacon. It was the greatest wallet ever. Uh, uh, I I had... uh, bacon-looking band-aids and stickers, and there was once a uh, bacon air freshener that does not smell as good as waking up to the smell of bacon in your home. Let me tell you, if you see the bacon air freshener, just nod and smile and walk away. Um, But I, I share all that because there is one thing specifically about bacon that completely blew my mind, and I don't remember exactly when it started, but I do remember it, who it started with, our, our dear friends Mike and Chrissy Cosner in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And for some reason or another, there was a chocolate fondue fountain. And we had run out of everything else, of all of the fruit, and we said, what would happen if we dipped the bacon in the chocolate? I mean, they're, all, they're wonderful on their own. I love bacon. I love chocolate. But what happens when you put the two together? But, and at first, your mind is fighting against you, saying, no, this should not work. You should not cover meat in chocolate. But there's something about the savory saltiness of bacon and the, 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 the sweetness of the chocolate that they complement one another. And ever since then, I've been telling people all about it. So if you've never heard of chocolate-covered bacon, you're welcome. And I know that sounds somewhat ridiculous, but that's kind of what James is getting at here because he's talking about things that should not line up according to our way of thinking. That on our own, we have a natural way of thinking of of things that should be right and things the way they should be done. And James is saying, no, 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 the gospel, the Christian life, the Christian heart is contrary to what you naturally think and do. He's writing to this congregation. He says, you think that you, what you are doing, what you know is best and right and good, but it's actually sinful and dangerous to one another and to the church and to the gospel. There's a better way. 
over the past few weeks, we've actually looked and, and seen what James has said about uh, the, the, the faith of the Christian and how faith without works is dead. And last time I got to preach two weeks ago, uh, we looked at how uh, wisdom is, that is not rooted in God, James calls it evil and demonic. And those are strong words, but he's, he's driving home to this, this congregation that wisdom and a, a, a pattern of life that is separate from God is not just selfish, but it's evil. And this week, he's continuing that theme. He's unpacking it a little bit more, and he's talking about how the Christian life is actually contrary to the surrounding world and to the wisdom of this world. In fact, I would even say that James is arguing that the heart of the Christian should be contrary to the world's wisdom. Christians are called to be set apart, to be different. There are many at this time and in our world today who claim the name of Christ but they live no differently from a world that openly rejects Jesus Christ. And I can't remember where I first heard this, but I've heard pastors refer to this uh, way of thinking and way of living as practical atheism. That you're professing Jesus with your mouth, but living a lifestyle that is completely ignoring Him altogether. And that even, even if you're professing Jesus with your mouth, your actions and your life are completely separate from him. And so James is giving in this passage three ways that the Christian can check their heart, that you and I can check our hearts. And first, it's by examining an attitude shaped by passions. In verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 and 5, he's looking at examining an attitude shaped by adultery. So clearly, this is going to be a light morning. And in verses 6 through 12, examining an attitude that is shaped by humility. Before we go any further, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and this time to come together and just sit and your word, and what you have to say to us. That as James wrote this for the church in the first century, that it is still just as true and applies just as much to our church and our hearts today. So God, we pray that you would pour out your spirit in this place, that these would not be my words, these would not be my thoughts or my ruminations, but God, that this would be your gospel proclaimed, your truth changing our hearts. Be with us now in this time. We pray all of this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Starting off, James just jumps right in by looking at the attitude of a life that is driven by its passions. And he says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Now keep in mind, as I've mentioned several times before, that he is writing exclusively 
to a Christian audience. He is writing to a group of believers that are under persecution and have fled for their lives. So he is not writing to an audience of you know, half Christians, half non-Christians, or uh, as today we would say, the, the seeker-sensitive crowd. He's not writing to a congregation like that. He is writing to a group of believers, people that are professing the name of Christ, and he's saying that there are fights and quarrels among them. And he, he, he doesn't blame the external. He doesn't say, you know, well, is it, it's probably because the way that someone treated you that you are fighting back against them. He doesn't say, well, it, you need to examine the way that you were raised. Maybe your, your dad didn't hug you enough as a child. Or maybe you were spanked too many times or not enough. Or he, he doesn't blame these external circumstances. I think if James were writing to the church today, he would even say, it's not about who you did or did not vote for. Or what team's mascot you fly from your window. He doesn't blame any of these external sources. No, he says that the problem is inside. He says that the problem is in the heart. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter writes to the congregation, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Scripture is continually full of the theme that there are conflicting natures within God's people. There's His righteousness that is making us more and more into the image of God the Son. But naturally on our own, we are driven by our sinful desires and our passions that are waging war within us. The problem isn't external. It's that the passions of your sinful nature are fighting against the Spirit for your very soul. In verse 2, he goes on that you desire and do not have, so you murder And some of you today might be saying, whoa, last time I checked, I have not murdered anybody. That's a bold claim. Some of us might say that we would like to sometimes. Frustrations and anger. But I've never murdered anybody. I haven't killed anybody. But James, throughout his his letter to the church, continually references his half-brother Jesus. And in fact, going back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus Himself says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to judgment to the hell of fire. All of a sudden, that hits a little closer to home. Just the, the statement of it's not just about murder, it's about your anger. The way that you talk to people or insult them. 
the times that you might have said, you fool, you idiot, or any variation of those words that might be even worse than that. As a quick show of hands, I'd just like to see who here in their life has to interact with other people. Exactly. It's going to happen. People are going to get on your nerves. People are going to frustrate you and anger you and upset you and let you down. And Jesus is saying that anytime you react to those people with anger or insults or mockery, Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, is saying that that is on equal level with committing murder. It's not a physical murder, but you are murdering the integrity, the heart, the soul of someone made in the image of God. And so James says, you desire and you do not have and you are committing murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. These things that we crave, the passions of your sinful nature are saying, I want this and I want more of it. And James is saying, you can't have it, and so you fight each other. Within God's own people, there's fighting and quarreling and arguing and bickering. You do not ask. He goes on to say, you do not have because you do not ask. He's saying this is the lack of a prayer life in the church, in the heart of the Christian. That it's worse than just bickering amongst one another, but that we're not even taking our hearts to to the very God who provides these things for us. Again, this is just as true for us today as it was when he wrote it. You do not have, so you fight and you bicker. And you do not have because you do not ask. And then he goes on even further and says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I think when Jesus said, ask and you shall receive, He's not talking about the passions of your heart, the fleeting things that do not fulfill. Jesus isn't saying, ask and you shall receive as some sort of spiritual buffet that you can pick and choose the things that you want. He's not saying, ask and you shall receive to see that God is some kind of spiritual Santa Claus. God, I I promise if, if you just let me get that winning Powerball ticket, I'll do so many good things. And I'll admit, I've I've said that before. I'm not going to lie about that. But we treat prayer as a spiritual gimme list. God, give me this. I want this. And Jesus, or uh, James, excuse me, is saying, you do not have because you're asking for the wrong motives. When Jesus said, ask and you shall receive, he's talking about asking and receiving to the glory of God's name and his kingdom and his will, not so that your will can be done. So I want to ask, 
in your own prayer life? Whose will are you praying for? That your will be done or God's will be done? Are you praying for the passions of your own heart? Are you praying for the passion of God's heart? And as James is talking about uh, the intensity of the passions of your sinful nature, it increases into spiritual adultery. And that's what James looks at next is the attitude of adultery. He says, you adulterous people, Up until this point, even when James has been correcting the church, he's done it very lovingly. If you go back and and read through the previous chapters, he's actually referred to this congregation of believers as brothers. This uh, familial affection. And he said that at least nine times. Brothers, I urge you. Brothers, do this. Brothers, take care. And all of a sudden now, the language changes from the intimacy of brothers to the unintimacy, if that's such a thing, of adultery. And this isn't anything new. This is the language that God has used to describe His people since the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 3, Jeremiah uh, records... Uh, Surely as a a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. God's people have a long-standing history of abandoning the one that loves them. In fact, the entire book of Hosea is one giant living metaphor where God instructs the the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer who their, their second and third child are actually not his. And so his children are named unloved and not mine. <laughs> I know. And we read that when, with our cultural eyes today and we say that that's horrible. And our hearts are no different from the people of Israel. That this God who has displayed His affection of covenant faithfulness for generations, and we so easily give our hearts away to anything else. And James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? This isn't just a casual friendship of acquaintance. This isn't, oh, hey, talking to your neighbor and we're friends now. This, this is, the, the word for friendship here is, a, is an intimate friendship, a, a deep uh, spiritual relationship. That this intimate friendship with the world is enmity with God. I know we don't use the word enmity in our everyday language, but this is a, an open hostility with God, that we are openly defiant and against Him. And James is saying that intimacy with the world is hostility towards the God who has redeemed you. In verse 5, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose 
it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. Again, this is not a new concept to believers. This is not a new concept to the people of God. That is, God has redeemed His people in the book of Exodus, delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and He's giving them the Ten Commandments, the, the, the law. He says, do not bow down to other gods and give your hearts away to them because I am a jealous God. Not jealousy and, and, and insecurity that he's afraid that they'll find someone or something better, but jealous in the fact that he has given them his affection and he does not want them to give that away to others. In my own marriage, I have given my heart and my life to my wife. And if there were someday another man that tried to come in and take that place, there would be a a strong opposition of jealousy. Not thinking, I'm afraid that she is going to run and cheat on me, but because she is the one that I have given my heart and my affection to, and I don't want any other man to come and try to take that away. And I want to be delicate because, statistically speaking, someone in here has been hurt and wounded and damaged because of adultery, your parents, your own relationship. Statistically speaking, someone in here has been deeply wounded by adultery and the fleeting passions of our sinful nature. And so I want to, I want to give this the delicacy that it requires, but at the same time, there's the brutal honesty that this is the way that we treat God. That He's the one who displays His affections for His people. And we take that and we run out and give it to anything else that will please us for a fleeting moment of passion. God says that He is the one who is covenantally faithful to His people. And more often than not, do you look at that and say, yeah, I understand that, God, but this will make me happy right now. This thing that I want. More often than not, we are not just the victims but we are the adulterers giving our hearts away. As I said, if anyone tried to, take, or to get in the way of the intimacy between my, me and my wife, that out of jealousy that there would be strong opposition to that, that is what God has for you as His people, as your Creator, as your King, as your Redeemer, God says, no, I have given my affection to my people. And out of a righteous jealousy, God says, they are mine. And James shifts gears at this point from passions and adultery to what the heart of the Christian should look like, completely counter to selfishness and a life driven by passion. 
but he looks at an attitude of humility. In verse 6, James says, but he, being God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This paraphrase of of uh, Proverbs 3.34 sets up the tone of the, the rest of this passage that there's this conflict of the proud versus the humble, the selfish versus the unselfish, the one wanting to everything for, our, for selfish passions and the one willing to give everything else away. And James says that God opposes the proud and the selfish and the passion-driven person but gives grace to the humble. And then the next passage, in, uh, or not, the next few verses, verses 7 through uh, 10, James actually gives nine imperatives that for those of you that are, are, are uh, a lover of grammar and language, that this isn't just a casual suggestion. James is emphatically pleading, do these things. In fact, he says, submit, resist, draw near, cleanse, purify, be wretched, mourn, weep, and humble yourself. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the opposite of a passion-driven life. Of a heart that is constantly chasing after things that do not satisfy. This is the opposite. Not fighting and quarreling, but submission to God and resisting the enemy. Resisting the devil. Resisting temptation. This isn't adultery. This is intimacy. Drawing near. Again, uh, this is an echo of his half-brother Jesus. And uh, a couple of chapters earlier, there was another uh, a very similar echo where uh, James was pretty much giving a paraphrase of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, and he's doing it again in Matthew 5, verses 2 through 10. Jesus himself said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That the heart of the Christian lives in abundance when you give yourself away. It's not about being driven by passions and accumulating more stuff and things and power and wealth, but it's living in a position 
where you're in submission to God, the one who gives you those things in the first place and saying, you are what I'm going to chase after. Not these things, not this stuff, not relationships or money or power, but the one who created all of those things in the first place. Like the thought of bacon and chocolate going together. This way of thinking is contrary to our natural thought. It doesn't seem like it should work. It doesn't seem like it is where life is found. And James says, this is life. This is the gospel. This is the heart of the Christian. To stop fighting and to submit you want life, then stop chasing fleeting passions that will never fulfill and satisfy. James is saying, mourn over your sin. Grieve over the sin that is waging war against your very soul. And humble yourself before God, and He will exalt you. And the beautiful thing is that this is not something that we're having to figure out on our own, but that God himself has already done this in the person of Jesus Christ. That he's the one that submitted himself to the will of the Father. That he came and he resisted temptation. He resisted the devil. That he came in purity and humility. And he grieved not just sin, but the effects of sin. The destruction and the death that sin brings with it made Jesus weep. And he humbled himself, as Philippians says, to the point of death on a cross. That this God who speaks reality into being came in the person of Jesus in all of his splendor and glory and power, and humbled himself to death on a cross. Not just to save you from a life of enmity and hostility, but to give you his righteousness, to give you his status, to give you his peace. Not just to save you from punishment, but to give you eternal life. And then James closes out this passage by talking about judgment versus humility. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? As the ones created by the judge himself, we are not above the law. You and I are not able to judge because the, the judge himself has already come to declare you righteous by taking your guilt and punishment upon Himself and giving you His status. And so as we close today, I want to ask you, which will you choose? 
Will you continue chasing the fleeting passions of your sinful nature that lead to adultery against God and enmity and hostility? Or will you submit yourself in humility before the judge himself who has already declared you righteous in his place? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us, for Your love, for for what You have already done on our behalf. That God, as we bring uh, the honesty of our selfish nature, of our sinfulness, We confess that far too often we are driven by the passions of our heart which lead us to commit adultery against you. And in this time this morning, God, we pray that we would live in humility not to earn your love, but because you already gave us your love. That we would live a life of humility that is contrary to to this fallen and broken world. That we would rest in the work that Jesus Christ has already done. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in his mighty name. Amen.